0: Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program.
1: There's a mysterious stone plaque in the little Ligurian town of Camogli. I've never been able to discover who put it there. It contains an inscription that must surely be part of a poem, but if so, it's not part of any poem that I have ever been able to find. It reads, Mare tu sfidi il tempo dall'alba del mondo. O sea, you defy time since the dawn of the world. The speaker or writer is addressing the sea in the familiar second person, as one would a friend, a child or a lover, and this little town has been a seaport and a fishing port since the barbarians left or settled down, or whatever they did, somewhere around the 10th century and the inhabitants came down from their hill towns to inhabit the coastlines. Once upon a time, it had so many ships that it earned the nickname City of a Thousand Sails. It contributed a large part of Napoleon's fleet at the Battle of the Nile, as well as funding the ships that brought Garibaldi's Thousand Red Shirts to Sicily. And, of course, the city of Genoa is a near neighbour, the birthplace of Christopher Columbus and one of the most powerful seaports of the Mediterranean for hundreds of years. O sea, you defy time since the dawn of the world. The word for dawn is alba. It's derived from the Latin word albus. Album means a blank writing tablet, so each new dawn is a blank page upon which a new day can be written. And the alba del mondo is the first blank page of all the dawn of time upon which a whole universe and its inhabitants and imaginings would form the text. And Camoglie is just the kind of place to inspire such reflections. By and large, the sea here is gentle, a more or less constant swell runs along the shore, collapsing gently against the breakwater and the pebbly beach. The vari-coloured houses and restaurants look out on it with affection. The inhabitant spends as much time as possible on the beach, often coming down from their workplaces to eat their lunch there, or play cards, or just sleep the siesta away. But when the Ligurian Sea is angry, the storms are truly destructive. There are photographs of waves breaking against the bell tower of the Basilica of Santa Maria. One particularly bad storm a few years ago flooded the entire waterfront and knocked down most of the restaurants above the beach. In nearby Rapallo, it completely destroyed the harbour and drove over a hundred yachts onto the rocks, including the very expensive motor yacht of none other than Silvio Berlusconi. It's an ill wind, one might say. The people of Camogli, of course, say that the storm wrecked Rapallo's harbour because it was built by Mussolini, whereas theirs survived intact because it was built by Napoleon. Camogli, is home to the last traditional tuna fishery in Italy. Because the area of sea outside Camoglia is a nature reserve, stretching all the way to Sardinia, the nets are made in the traditional way of hemp, hand-turned into rope and then knotted into a net. Once the hemp was grown on the mountain of Portofino, but nowadays it's imported. When the season is over, they simply cut the buoys and let the net drop to the bottom, where it rots quietly over winter. A new net is made every spring. Needless to say, tuna and its oily relations dominate the menus during the summer. The high point of the tourist season at Camogli is the Sagra del Pesce in May, the festival of the fish. Strictly speaking, Sagra does not mean festival, but something closer to consecration. So perhaps the consecration of the fish will be a better translation. In any event, it's a manic few days with concerts, parades and a giant frying pan that serves fried fish to two or three thousand people a day. The two main quarters of the town compete for the most impressive bonfire for the Sagra and the results can be apocalyptic. Each quarter literally builds a wooden sculpture atop a pile of timber 40 or 50 feet high and as soon as darkness falls they set them alight. The flames can probably be seen in France. Showers of sparks like falling stars blow out over a tranquil sea and boats come from Genoa and further afield to view the spectacle from a distance. But in a few days the sea will have wiped it all clean. The sea that has defied time since the dawn of the world Mare, tu sfidi il tempo dall'alba del mondo. Sento una canzone dolce in fondo
2: al cuore quando penso a Maria. Sento una canzone, una canzone d'amor
1: quando penso a Maria.
3: Mags and I, age 15, dancing in the strobe lighting at a college disco. She is leaning back into herself, long hair flying around her. Her hair is longer than mine and we both have blue eyes, but hers are bigger and so blue. The color seems to have seeped into the whites. But I'm wearing my new purple jeans and the sprung wooden floor under my feet is bouncing with the feet of all the people around us. I can't remember what was playing. Was it Rebel Rebel? When one of the organisers came and tapped Mags on the shoulder, gesturing for her to go up on stage. Left alone, I retreated to a chair in the dark and saw him tap another girl's shoulder, then another's. The music stopped and the DJ announced that these five girls on stage had been chosen to go forward for the Miss Mondello Beauty Contest. It took me a few minutes to realise that my best friend had been chosen for her beauty and I had not. Around that time as well I was watching the Miss World Contest trying to figure out what was and wasn't beautiful according to the world. Each contestant walked along the stage in a swimsuit And a plummy male voice announced that this was Miss Gianna, and her measurements were 34, 24, 34. Perfect, I thought. She's perfectly proportioned. The women walked and were assessed and I also assessed them and then myself in the mirror. In May this year, the artist Caroline Schofield and I facilitated a workshop called Portraits of Myself for the Butler Gallery and the Bialthana Festival. A group of women gathered on Zoom and to begin, Caroline put up an image of a young woman on the screen and asked us what we thought. In the portrait, her eyes were clear as pale blue sea glass. This photograph, one of a series by artist Eva O'Leary, was taken from behind a mirror with a camera. young women aged 12 to 14 looked into the mirror but did not know when the photograph would be taken i joked that being on zoom was like following yourself around with a mirror aware of how you appeared to others but somehow in that group of mature women we were able to quickly move beyond that and connect in an embodied way through the medium and like all good mediums, we began to look through the screen as if it were a crystal ball to find other portraits that represented who we were, our inner and outer landscapes. A seer will use a mirror for divining, lighting a candle and looking into the mirror, faces shape-shifting until eventually they can look past the outer appearance. I was thinking of a novel I read as a young woman by Hermann Hesse, about the spiritual journey of self-discovery of a man named Siddhartha during the time of the Gautama Buddha. At the end of that novel and his life, Siddhartha became a boatman, ferrying people across the river. And an old friend, realizing that Siddhartha had become enlightened, asked him to teach him. Siddhartha invited him to kiss his forehead. And when he did this, he saw faces and whole lifetimes flashing by. Joy, pain, hurt, terror, birth, death, rebirth. The women in our workshop took photographs of or sketched and painted trees, adding words and poems. We spoke about the white thorn, a crone in winter, but in May a young maiden, a bride. And I thought of myself that night at the college disco, the middle-aged man who walked amongst us, Picking one and not the other. How lying in bed that night raging and full of despair. I wish that I could be so beautiful no one would ever be able to do that to me again. How beautiful a voice in my head asked. And immediately another voice said the most beautiful woman in the world. The voice of the stepmother in Snow White came to me. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? And the realisation that no matter how beautiful she was, in time, she would lose that competition. And of course, my friend Mags was often rejected. And there were times when I was picked. But we always chose each other, especially as bridesmaids when we married. In just two mornings of four hours, the women on our workshop, Portraits of Myself in May, formed a deep and lasting connection as we realised that the infinity of ourselves could never be caught in one image or one season. To end, I read the song of Wandering Angus and when it came to the line about the glimmering girl with apple blossom in her hair, my voice broke. And being the women they were, they reached through the screen, the mirror, and we touched.
0: what you are gets
2: you don't know baby be hulig <laughs> Been she der crocco om of nail nallehnt a sha a adas atami deck shul to hear idrona drone kosha erngo berngletch ron conigair temit har na batti har na crocca goroma co grish tor hala ni hemit bon riev Kasimid godilish gachain ur egengrish, or gemina a lager godingualtachter nishligan. Ida vagal in a ar arnig. A mu erna tantra fecimid ne fuylan, ne gena agas corpophin. Or dim an pyre de hulig, agas dirim erna hena tire nishka. La sole one denomiroch is gera a Cassam an fáine agus in ilóna mór hapelarm Sredinana nahéana ag rothlú búr éon bmh ar an héir éf hirdoing antide natra, sua ar an na Doler Tugan agus iíonn aníomhá dóléir agus Tá si fricha hele se lynne, fekem ga ie ek omreskail lenne ek eelu ee lo Táim er wallge er ale gnemooig sid. Denam cht ieder a hoog jegel got le idle naskem in le hele en a wan. Binoculars they hang from my neck these days while we are walking forever towards the end on the spit that they call the Coniger. We go as far as the sticks, past the blue rocks, as far as the life belt. We never go to the end. We turn faithfully each time at the life belt, our footsteps going steadfastly over the shells, leaving them in smithereens behind us. Out on the waves we see the seagulls, the geese and the occasional puffin. I lift the pair of binoculars and train them on the birds swimming on the water. With one eye I try to get the sharpest image. Rotating the focusing ring and I begin to get a picture. The wind is a light breeze around me. The screeches of the geese roll over my head. The bellow of a cow on the grass behind me, the tide in turmoil along the fringe of the strand. The image comes and goes, cloudy and obscure. The birds wait patiently, reflected one over the other in the glass. I see two images wrestling with each other, evading me. I'm trembling in my rush to see them, afraid they'll go. I try to merge them until I succeed in joining them together in one single arc.
4: On the last Friday of every month, my mother paid Mary Kelly. I only remember that because of the brown paper bag with crisps and chocolate she sent home for us children on payday. Cadbury's dairy milk, tato and a can of Fanta Orange each. We didn't even have to share them. My mother always said the same thing. I don't know how that woman makes any profit in her shop. She's way too generous. I'll have to ask her to stop. No, we wailed. Mammy, don't. The viability of Mary Kelly's shop was no concern of ours. Inherited from her mother before her, Mary Kelly's shop was always painted red. The display windows on either side of the door were rearranged regularly. Selection boxes and biscuit tins at Christmas, pyramids of Easter eggs during Lent and Halloween masks in October. There were yellow and red streamers of plastic so that you couldn't see through to the shop from the road. And when Mary was decorating the window, all you could see was her disembodied arm arranging this season's treats. I never saw Mary Kelly outside of her shop, although I believe she went to 7.30 Mass every morning, returning just in time to sell the cigarettes to the men on their way to work in the sugar factory. She ran a book for my grandmother, my mother and my aunt, and for countless other Carlo people, mostly women. The entries were written in a sort of code that only Mary and her customer understood. SLP was a sliced pan. Ten sigs could mean silkot red in the case of my mother, consulate for granny, or silkot purple for my aunt. Each day more was added until a line was drawn at the end to signify payment. My grandmother's last bill, came to eight pounds, four shillings and six pence. Stepping into Mary's shop, a bell rang as the door shut behind you. The counter ran round three sides of the shop, with the door into the house directly in front of you on entry. It was from here that Mary would appear, calling, coming, coming, as she padded into the shop in her housecoat and flat shoes, often with a hairnet covering her pink rollers. The house, or what you could see of it through the doorway, looked like the set from a play, with red velour chairs facing a fireplace topped with a ticking clock and a swirly brown carpet. I remember, as a small child, hearing Mary discuss the new decimal currency that was coming in to replace pounds, shillings and pence. She was holding the orange information leaflet in her hand, saying, How will I remember it? I'll never get used to it. But get used to it, she did. Except for the milk. I remember being sent in to get the messages one day shortly afterwards. I had a list, which Mary transferred to the book. She muttered to herself as she walked around behind the counter, picking up tea bags and butter, before turning to me and asking, Your mammy wants milk. Did she say you were to get a large litre or a small litre? If we were homesick from school, and Mam popped in for a bottle of Lucasade. Mary would reach up to where the lucky bags were hanging on a kind of clothesline over her head. Bring this home to the poor child, she'd say, and the poor child would be ecstatic to unfold the gummed top of the magical mystery bag, containing anything from a lollipop to a tiny yo-yo, a whistle and a bag of jellies. Sometimes Mary Kelly's sister was visiting, and as soon as we would arrive into the shop, she'd say... "'Hold on, hold on till I get you a few sweets.' Mam would say, not at tall, despite the glares we shot at her, but Mary's sister wasn't deterred. She'd run around behind the counter to the side that had jars of sweets and bars of chocolate, and reaching for the eyes or gobstoppers, she'd say, "'Catch!' before rolling them one by one across the counter. Then, from both sides of the shop, in stereo, the two sisters would marvel at how tall we'd got.' how like our granny or our cousins we were and what lovely clothes we were wearing. Mary Kelly's is boarded up now. The big supermarkets opened, the sugar factory closed and Mary retreated into old age to her silent sitting room, waiting for another bell to ring. But when she finally left us, it wasn't without one more surprise. A few months after her death, my mother and aunt got a phone call to say Mary Kelly had left them a small sum of money in her will. A token of gratitude for their loyal custom over the years.
5: To read Ernest Hemingway is to know what it's like to be young, to be a romantic, pursuing a romantic dream to become a writer in a romantic city. To believe that you have reserves of bravery to summon within yourself to pursue this yearning. And whether success or failure follows, that you will act with grace under pressure. To read Hemingway is to appreciate that, however brave you may be, things can and do go wrong. That lives, often the most bravely lived lives, can end in failure. And only if we are lucky will the places where we are broken mend. And that these mended, broken places may, if our luck holds, be our strongest points. To read Hemingway is to learn how death comes to all of us. But death comes especially to the brave. Though death will come for the rest of us too, but perhaps not so soon. And it is always a mistake to postpone physical pleasure, good food, French wines and Spanish beers, challenging pursuits and the sensual dividends that we share as a bonus throughout life with one another. To read Hemingway is to know that the good parts of the stories you want to write can be something you overheard or the total wreckage of your life and that one is as good as the other. It is to wonder how this privileged young man, born in 1899 and from conservative, suburban Oak Park, Illinois, reinvented himself as a world-regarded aficionado of the Spanish bullfight and learned from the bullring and the battlefield how the greatest difficulty a writer faces, aside from knowing what you truly feel rather than what you're supposed to feel, is to accurately capture the precise action that arouses those true feelings. To read Hemingway is to offer to the participants of a creative writing workshop one of the vignettes that he placed between his early short stories. Then to consider how an execution scene from the Greco-Turkish wars of the 1920s repeatedly uses the words wall, hospital, water to perfectly express the shock of seeing those six cabinet ministers being shot by noticing how the mind fixates on tiny details, wall, hospital, water. The complexities of traumatic experience are vividly rendered in the plainest language. To read Hemingway is to recognise his influence on Raymond Chandler, Raymond Carver, Tobias Wolfe in The Big Sleep, So Much Water Close to Home and Hunters in the Snow. But none ranged so widely as Hemingway in his work and his life, from Michigan to Paris to Pamplona and from Madrid to Kenya to Venice and Key West, Cuba and Tanganyika and Idaho, finally. There, on his ranch in Ketchum, depleted by heavy drinking that had teetered into alcoholism, the pain of multiple serious injuries after two plane crashes in Africa, mental depression and the loss of his talent as a writer, Ernest Hemingway took his own life in July 1961. To read the posthumous Hemingway biographies is to be revolted by the spectacle of a rich white hunter in Kenya posing with the gun and the leopard he's shot as a trophy. To see a human being stand knee-deep in dead wildlife killed for sport. To raise an obscenely powerful rifle to shoot an elephant. To shoot many elephants. To deprive a full-grown lion of its life as a test of nerve and solitary resolve. To equate manliness with torturing a bull to death in the Spanish heat, to treat professional celebrity as a platform for blowhard, macho display, and even more deplorable, the iconic bearded Papa Hemingway in a crew neck sweater image that hid the bully who was most cruel and resentful towards those who'd been kindest to him in the course of his career and still to read hemingway is to take the highest pleasure from a master stylist who wrote so keenly about the pleasures we take in and from the world who knew the importance of ritual as a yardstick for human conduct as the model and means by which we embrace with unhesitating passion the danger and beauty of passing experience in the face of life's brevity. What endures is a contradictory, big, two-hearted writer who brought to the page with incomparable accuracy the movement of troops in the Spanish Civil War, how the dust they raise as they pass powders the leaves and the trunks of the trees two young lovers riding their bicycles on the hot white roads of the Camargue. A left-bank café in Paris from the 1920s, warm and clean and well-lit, where you hang your hat, order a café au lait, take out a pencil and moleskin notebook and begin to write.
6: Coming down to Naples, coming into Naples, with the seats in front upright, and the past safely stored away, I glimpse a white chapel on a hilltop, of sunlit pines and dull green olive groves. It must be San Michele that I've seen out of the banking window, something a psychoanalyst made a story of a clear white epiphany in the mist of late September. Axel Munt and Trevor Howard, even Lord Kildare in his day, incline us toward an encounter with this sunlit Bougainvillea coast where northern souls are calmed. All ennui is lost and secrets hidden are exposed in an intense light. How strange it would be if we could take a cheap flight into self-knowledge, if we could so easily see the truth of our being between Ischia and Capri, if we could just step onto a quay in a warm elsewhere and shed every wet weather anxiety and care. We land in a sudden roar of reverse thrust, a wheeze of too much Campania wine, too much lust for our own good as we steady ourselves to negotiate a bustling, incomprehensible taxi arriving late into a cool foyer, pale green marble. We throw shutters open and turn down unremarkable blue covers and indescribably thin pillows and laugh at ourselves and laugh through hot windows at the miracle of having gone so far. This is what it is, in all honesty. It is what staying home cannot give us, this lightness of touch, lightness of approach to everything that doesn't quite work out. We clutch at marble columns instead of straws. We reach for that heightened sense of self, the fresh peach on a pink wall near Leopardi's tomb, the diamond thrill of an alto sax on a boat, tall windows ablaze on a hill.
0: On this morning's programme, we heard The Sea That Defies Time by William Wall. Mirror, Mirror was by Lanny O'Hanlon. De Hoolig, Binoculars by Catherine Foley. Mary Kelly's Shop by Maria O'Rourke. Reading Hemingway by Brian Layden. And Coming Down to Naples by Thomas McCarthy. The music was La Mia Canzone Per Maria by Lucio Battisti. I'll Be Your Mirror by The Velvet Underground and Nico. Going Up the Country by Canned Heat. Waltz in C-sharp minor by Chopin, played by Dinu Lepati. And Viva la Quinta Embargada, sung by Pete Seeger. This morning's programme was produced by Lorcan Clancy. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Willem McCartney, and the series producer is Sarah Binchy.
3: RTE Radio 1.
0: You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.